everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Unjustly. My name is Stephanie and this is my co-host Sandy. Hello everyone. So I know this happened probably a little bit ago, but if you haven't seen this, um, I was just telling Sandy about a documentary. I guess technically it's a documentary that um, Tim and I watched last night about Britney Spears. Okay. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. So it's by, it's a series on Hulu, or I guess that's where I watched it. Um, that's called the New York Times Presents. And this is the first season and this just happens to be like the sixth episode, but it's like an hour and a half long episode. So it could kind of be like a documentary. Yeah. It's long enough. Um, and the documentary is called Framing Britney Spears. That sounds interesting already. Right. So you would think that it's just like a documentary about Britney Spears' life. And it kind of is. But it talks about the conservatorship that she's under right now. Oh, that's a mess. Yeah. So and it and it talks about how she ended up in a conservatorship, like all okay. of the things that like we thought, I guess, at the time were, oh, my God, Britney's being so crazy. She shaved mm-hmm. her head, all of these things. But it really talks about like the mental aspect of it okay. and how the world just wasn't at a place where we understood what like a mental breakdown looked like or, yeah. you know, all of the things that she might have been going through. So it was really cool take I guess Mm -hmm. you could say on her on her life in that way but it was kind of crazy because this whole idea of the conservatorship was Mm -hmm. really created for older people who you know can no longer really take care of themselves make decisions for themselves make decisions Mm -hmm. for themselves and you know this goes into how her dad who wasn't really in her life growing up suddenly has conservatorship not only over herself as a person but also her estate and what that means for Mm -hmm. um, any business deals she makes basically he can make business deals for her and Mm -hmm. it turned into kind of a business and that was put into like legal documents with the court where they felt she had gotten to a point where she was sufficient and like able to take care of herself enough to where this conservatorship was now being viewed as a business for like her father and the lawyers that's weird based off of like what she was doing and so it's kind of this it actually started with a podcast so there is like a movement called free britney (laughs) i've seen it that started on (laughs) with a podcast these Mm -hmm. two girls who were just like what's going on and they started like looking at her instagram pictures and deciphering what her stories and pictures actually meant and so it was actually really interesting take on how someone her age who seems to be fairly well mm-hmm. and incompetent a- and, competent and mm-hmm. able to make all of these business decisions and be successful is still under conservatorship. So this is as recent as November of 2020 that her lawyers are fighting to have someone else like her mom mm-hmm. be her conservator rather than her dad because she doesn't trust her dad and the court in November denied that request for now. So they're still fighting, like they're still fighting this, but she has refused to work. She's refused to do anything until her father is no longer in charge of her. Wow. So it's really sad. It's crazy because I mean, I was telling Tim, like if this could happen to someone as successful and Mm -hmm. as, you know, popular as Britney Spears, I feel like there's a deeper issue with why the courts are allowing this to continue to happen, especially knowing that people are financially benefiting from Mm -hmm. keeping her in this conservatorship Mm -hmm. it's pretty crazy so if you guys haven't seen it by now i will i would definitely recommend watching that cool so today's story is kind of like a full circle moment um 
Right. I hadn't I haven't told Sandy what this is about or anything. I love so. when Stephanie doesn't <laughs> tell me what story she's doing because it surprises me every time. <laughs> so in episode six, I did the story of Ronald Cotton yes. and Jennifer Thompson okay. Camino. I remember. Um, and in that story, um, I talked about how when Jennifer was going through everything she was going through, mm-hmm. um, she thought about this woman, Deborah Sykes, yes. who had been raped, stabbed, and killed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was about two months prior to when things happened to her. Mm-hmm. And so she had all of this like guilt about why she was able to live and, you know, Deborah Sykes died. Like if right. she hadn't fought, had things had t- turned out differently. Mm-hmm. So this is a story of Deborah Sykes murder and rape and really the wrongful conviction of Daryl Hunt, who was sent to jail for almost two decades for a crime he didn't commit. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I'm so excited really to hear about this one because I don't know anything about her case. Yeah, I didn't. I purposely didn't look things up when I was doing Jennifer's mm-hmm. story because I always thought, okay, like at some point I'll go back to this. Mm-hmm. So, so this is that point. Yeah, I got my sources from Wikipedia, an article on North Carolina Coalition for Alternatives to the Death Penalty website, an article on the ACLU, a documentary called Trials of Daryl Hunt, and an article by Regina Lane, who you will find out later who Regina Lane is. On the morning of August 10th, 1984, co-workers of Deborah Sykes, a 25-year-old white woman, noticed that she had not shown up to work as they had expected her to. Knowing that Deborah was a dedicated copy editor, some of her co-workers decided to go searching for her and came across her car, but she was nowhere to be found. They filed a missing persons report with the police, and the search for Deborah began. It wasn't long before Deborah had been found, raped, and murdered just outside of Winston-Salem. The killing of a young white woman had sparked community outrage and police became eager to make an arrest, which we kind of see a lot of these wrongful convictions start this way with people who are just desperate to make an arrest to kind of appease the community that they're living in. It's almost like a witch hunt. Yeah. So police received a phone call from a man claiming to be Sammy Mitchell. He stated that he had seen the woman being attacked and that he thought she needed help. And this was all the police had to go on. So they picked up Sammy Mitchell and began questioning him. Mitchell denied having made the call or being around the area at the time of the crime, but police had already began piecing together a story of what had happened to Deborah, and Mitchell was at the center of it. Police were familiar with Sammy Mitchell as he had been charged and tried for robbery in like within the last year, I believe. When police realized that they had nothing but this phone call, they began to believe that perhaps Mitchell hadn't been the one that placed the call to 911, but that whoever did stated that they were Mitchell as a way to tip off the police that Mitchell was actually involved in the crime some way. Or like a setup? Or like a setup. Okay. While the focus had initially been on Mitchell, another witness had come forward and provided a physical description of the man assumed to be the perpetrator. That description did not match that of Mitchell. So police began leaning on Mitchell's best friend and assumed protege, so someone that like looked up to him. And so I think they believed that because... Mitchell had been in some trouble that his mm-hmm. best friend was also the kind of person who would be getting into trouble. Okay. So this man's name is Daryl Hunt. Mm. And in the hopes of having him finger Mitchell as the one responsible for Sykes' murder, Hunt told his lawyer, Mark Rabble, that he had been offered $12,000 by the police if he mm. were to admit that Mitchell had been the one responsible oh, no. for the murder and threatened him saying that if he didn't, then he would be charged and arrested for the crime. Oh, this is already headed in an awful direction. Awful. 
So Daryl Hunt, knowing his friend had not been involved, refused to succumb to the pressure and denied Mitchell and his own involvement. So it was later found out that the person who had made the call to 911 was a man by the name of Johnny Gray. Johnny Gray was known as a shady individual by the locals of the town. Mm -hmm. And so many of the townspeople familiar with him instantly found it odd that someone like him had been the one to make the call and the one to point the finger at someone else. Right. So things were kind of sketchy. When questioned why he provided Sammy Mitchell's name when he called, he said that he didn't know a Sammy Mitchell and that he doesn't remember having given that name. Isn't it recorded, though? But it is recorded. Oh I will say, so in the documentary, they do play the clip of the 911 call. It was It's old. It's an old call. So it was really hard to like truly make out what was being said. Okay. But people were convinced that what he said was that his name was Sammy Mitchell. Mm-hmm. At the time of the call, Gray had a criminal record, which included multiple assaults and robberies. So it's interesting that the police department gave him as much credence, knowing the kind of person that they were dealing with. But basically, that 911 call made by Johnny Gray was the start of all of this involving Sammy Mitchell and Daryl Hunt, his Mm -hmm. friend. So later on, another witness by the name of Thomas Murphy steps forward to say that he had seen Mrs. Sykes with a black man on the morning of the crime. When he arrived at work, Murphy is said to have told his co-workers that it was a shame to see another white woman gone wrong and that it would probably be... Yeah. (laughs) And it would be a tragedy if they ended up having children together. A statement, of course, drenched in racism with the implication that a white woman should not be with a black man. Still, in the days and weeks since coming forward, police had, in a sense, deputized Murphy, allowing him to sit in patrol cars with officers and detectives, watching as people walked by the scene of the crime, trying to identify the man he had seen with Sykes. So they kind of took him into the police force and were like, here, help us out. Let's try and identify the person that you saw. Okay. As he was not able to identify anyone, the chief detective pulled out pictures of both Hunt and Mitchell with a few others, and after seeing Hunt's picture, picked him out as the man he had seen with Sykes. Not surprisingly, Hunt's photo had a different look and even background as the others that had been presented, so it was very easy to stand out among the rest. Yeah, I feel like that's really common with the wrongful convictions. When Mm -hmm. you look at the actual setup that they had when they're comparing them with other people, completely different person Mm -hmm. sometimes it's different ethnicities too Mm -hmm. um the physical descriptions don't match yeah so of course you're going to pick out the person who most likely looks like the perpetrator which i feel like is exactly what you said in the ronald cotton Mm -hmm. episode as well yeah yeah so if you haven't heard that one i would go back to listen because i do Mm -hmm. go into like the the way lineups can be manipulated manipulated right So, of course, we now know that police lineups often lead to mistaken identifications and wrongful convictions. And in Daryl's case, that mistaken identification was the beginning of a saga that would lead to two decades in prison and two more decades of activism and fighting the system that had wrongfully imprisoned him and so many others. At his trial in 1985, the main evidence tying Daryl to the crime was the mistaken testimony of a couple of people who said they saw him the morning of the murder with Sykes or at a nearby hotel looking quote unquote suspicious. That witness from the nearby Hyatt Hotel said that he remembered seeing a man he thought was Daryl on the morning he thought was the day of the murder. So basically this guy is from a Hyatt Hotel that was in the area mm-hmm. and he couldn't specifically say that it was for sure the day of the murder. Okay. And he couldn't say for sure it was Daryl, but he still went on the stand and said, yes, that's a man. And yes, it was the day of the, oh of the murder. Gosh. And so what he recalls is that the man was having a hard time finding the main door into the hotel. And so the guy who he's 
remembering, went through like a side door or a back door. That was an exit door. It wasn't an entrance. And so he thought that was sketchy. Mm -hmm. I'm sure he also thought it was weird that a black man was coming into the Hyatt Hotel. Mm -hmm. like It was very racist. Like he just thought like. Yeah, it it was more of like, why was. Huh? Where did this take place? This was in North Carolina. Okay. So after making his way into the hotel, the man went into the bathroom before eventually leaving. Finding that the man was suspicious because he's black, mm-hmm. he went to the bathroom and found in the sink what he said was a pinkish sus- substance, which he assumed was blood. <laughs> oh so, God. yeah. This guy's the worst witness ever. <laughs> the witness also picked Hunt's photo from a lineup, but that lineup didn't happen until May of the following year. So this, no, the murder happened okay. in August, and then in May of the following year is when he was presented the lineup. But at this point, Hunt had already been identified as the suspect, and his photo mm-hmm. had been all over the media mm-hmm. and the newspapers. On the stand, the witness assured the jury that he had tried to avoid looking at the images prior to being presented the lineup. <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. no. <laughs> this is the absolute worst. <laughs> I just don't know how this ends. Oh. I like how this like, how does this happen? I don't know. But also people's memories can be affected by absolutely Listen anything. to episode six. I go into <laughs> that too. <laughs> Margaret Marie Crawford was 14 years old when she came forward as a witness. She was a self-described prostitute and cocaine addict. and Sex had worker? been. Well, yes, but she self-described at that time in 1984 as a prostitute and cocaine addict. And stated that she had been romantically involved with Hunt at the time of the crime. So she was like his girlfriend. So Crawford claimed that Daryl had confessed to the crime, but she herself had been facing charges on larceny and had hoped that her testimony in his case would result in a lighter sentence. Oh, man. In her initial statement, Crawford stated to police that she had seen Hunt shortly after the crime had taken place and that he appeared nervous and had been covered in mud and grass and so sykes had been found on a grass Mm -hmm. patch in another statement she stated that it had actually been mitchell who had stabbed raped and killed sykes but when she got on the stand she denied making both statements but they did have her statement but she denied it okay um and just as an fyi her psychiatrist had testified that crawford suffered from mental illnesses that made it hard for her to differentiate fantasy from reality oh so there's a lot going on she's a she's addicted to cocaine she's got mental illnesses and you know it makes it harder for her to really be a reliable reliable witness witness. but she was put on the stand during the trial hunt's defense team pointed out that johnny gray's girlfriend who had also been asked to testify had actually picked out two people from the lineup a number one and a number four i believe they both did the lineup together Mm -hmm. um, and they had both stated that number one and number four could be the the person that they saw okay but only hunt was ever looked into when asked why detective stated that she had not written down the number one and the number four as two separate suspects but get this that her number one suspect was the number four person in the lineup which happened to be daryl hunt oh so like there's a scratch of paper it was it was yeah. a clerical error. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like <laughs> they showed the picture of the piece of paper and it's like a scratch piece of paper. There's like writing on it. But on the top, it literally says one for almost like 
14, but with like more, a little bit more space between the one and the four. Okay. There's no like number one, number four. It's just one four. Mm-hmm. And based off of that, the police are saying, oh no, it's because she was saying that her number one suspect <laughs> was the number four person <laughs> in the lineup. And I just can't. Literally, people laughed in court when this was said. Like, I can't. But this was actually happening. Hunt had no record of violent crime or sexual offense at the time he became a suspect. And a former FBI agent who specialized in developing psychological profiles of sex offenders actually said that given what had happened, which was a violent crime, the perpetrator would have been someone with a history of violence against women. And although there was a lack of physical evidence and the witness testimony was shaky at best, in 1985, Daryl Hunt was convicted of rape and first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. He was only spared the death penalty because one juror refused to make it a unanimous vote for death. So one person person spared him. Mm -hmm. In 1989, Daryl's conviction was overturned after a local civil rights firm joined Hunt's team and began working on his appeals. Mark Rabble, who stayed with Hunt throughout his 19-year case, had only been working in law for four years when he was appointed to assist a senior partner in representing Hunt. Hunt was freed on a $50,000 bond and awaited his new trial. His defense team strongly believed and argued that Crawford should have never been allowed to testify. The jury had heard both of her statements that incriminated both Hunt and Mitchell, even though she denied both on the stand. But her denial at that point made little difference as the jury had already heard her statements incriminating Hunt. Interestingly enough, although a new trial was ordered, there was an issue of who would be in charge of representing the state because the local DA did not want to do it, and the attorney general's office said that the case was too messy for them to get involved with. Oh. But yet, they persisted. So they ended up having to bring in local prosecutors to try the case on behalf of the case, of the state, which I didn't know that was a thing. I mean, I guess, like, I understand what is happening, but I, I just thought that at that point, if the DA and the attorney general's office didn't want to fight the case, mm-hmm. that that should just that end. should just be yeah that mm-hmm. should just be it because they clearly don't believe enough in the case mm-hmm. and that they have enough evidence to, to prove continue trying it yeah so the special prosecutors offered hunt a plea deal if he pled guilty to second degree murder he would be released on time served everyone on his team and his family urged him to take the deal knowing that hunt would never be given a fair trial but hunt refused the deal stating he could not plead guilty to something he did not do mm-hmm. and so they went to trial for a second time the prosecution called on the same eyewitnesses as well as two new jailhouse informants. Oh, snitch testimonies. <laughs> we love them mm-hmm. and hate them. Right. <laughs> One of them was a man by the name of Jesse Miller. Jesse Miller was an old white man convicted of armed robbery. He was in prison at the time and he wrote a letter to the DA claiming that he had heard Hunt admit to the crime. I should point out that the letter was riddled with racial slurs, including the N-word, in terms like white rose when referring to Sykes, which is a KKK term used to describe a good Christian woman. Stop it. Stop. How could Mm -hmm. they accept this? Well, the state determined to convict Hunt again, decided Mm -hmm. to use his testimony anyway, and rewarded him for it by having him moved out of the prison system. The defense put an officer on the stand to try to discredit Gray's initial testimony that we now know had identified two suspects in the initial lineup. The officer stated at the second trial that the reason they never looked into the second person was because the person that had been pointed out had Mm -hmm. actually been in prison at the time of the murder. So clearly it couldn't have been the person responsible for Sykes' murder. Okay. Like the first case, the case had been tried on emotion and not facts. 
During his closing arguments, defense attorney Bowman laid out in front of the jury the bloody clothes that Deborah had worn the day of her murder and showed the jury horrible pictures of her dead body. He stated, finally, what was Deborah Sykes thinking? This real person, Deborah Sykes, what was she thinking when he spread those legs right there apart and crawled down inside her and he raped and ravaged her and deposited some thick, yellow, sickening fluid into her body? Did she feel the blood trickling down her back and her neck? Oh my God. Did she feel the blood running down her legs? Did she feel the life inside just trickle right out of her body right there on the grass? What hope, what hope, what hope did Deborah Sykes cling to then? Where was the judge and where was the jury when life's blood ran on the grass? So they, in the documentary, they interviewed a woman who had been on the jury. Mm -hmm. And she said that after that, it was just everyone was so emotional and everyone was crying that it was really hard not to let your emotions kind of get the best of you. And so she said that from that moment forward, everyone kind of knew he was going to be convicted again. He was the bad guy. Yep. Well, you know what? The thing is, I think it was more of like, which which is true, like this poor woman, she had such an awful death. She was murdered. She was stabbed. She was raped. You know, I think everything and, and as it should be, but the whole thing was about her and like what an awful untimely death she had mm-hmm. and not about the person who was on trial for her death. Mm-hmm. So it was like everything was about this victim and nothing was about the facts, you know, the person who they were charging with murder for mm-hmm. the crime. Like what it, what was his life up until then? He hadn't yeah. been in any trouble. So it wasn't so much that he was a bad guy. It was just like this is the person who is here right now. So he has to go to jail. Well, that's what the prosecutors do. They want to mess with your emotions because then you get so consumed with it that you're not even really looking at the person on the defense team Mm -hmm. as an actual person or that there's a possibility that he could be innocent because at that point you just see, you know, you're in red. All you see is this woman was murdered and Mm -hmm. it was horrible. And if this person is on defense then they must have a reason to put him there. Right. You trust the system. Mm -hmm. So Hunt was ultimately found guilty again by an all-white jury for a second time. His first jury was, um, I think it was all-white but one black person. Okay. Uh, He again was sentenced to life in prison, and feeling like there was little hope left, his team began to realize that the only way to prove his innocence once and for all was to find the person responsible for the crime. So they hired a private investigator who began his own investigation and found that several witnesses had been scared away by the police and never brought in for questioning, much less to testify. He also found that the primary defense witnesses were nowhere to be found. Hunt's team decided to file a motion and were granted a hearing with the Supreme Court in which they argued that the state had intimidated witnesses, which scared many of them from showing up at trial. In some cases, they argued that the state withheld evidence from the defense team, making it impossible for them to track down certain witnesses. So there was witnesses who had a different story, who Mm -hmm. they they told them not to come. Uh, There were some witnesses that they just didn't provide the information that the defense team needed to actually go and find them to question Mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. Um, So based on all of that, they were saying, you know, like, this isn't right. He deserves a new hearing. So during the hearing, not the actual like trial, but a hearing to see if all of this, like all of this warranted a new hearing or a new trial, his team fought to get more of the State Bureau of Investigations report. So the SBI report, because they hadn't actually been giving a lot of that information that came from the investigation. So they were in the dark about a lot of the things that had been found in the case, but the judge denied their request. So the team 
you know, wanting to get that information, filed a motion with the North Carolina Supreme Court asking that they make the judge approve the request for all of the evidence, and the request was finally approved. So Good. Hunt's team was provided with 3,000 pages of new information oh that had not previously had access to. And one of the most significant things they discovered in the SBI report was that the state had lied about the state of the DNA material available in the case. So they had collected semen mm -hmm. from semen and other like um, bodily DNA fluids. evidence. Um, but the state had declined to test the DNA evidence, saying that it was, quote unquote, too degraded to test. But the report clearly indicated that that was a lie. In Whoa. fact, the state knew since the time of his second trial that they could test the DNA, <gasps> but did not disclose it and did not have it tested. They chose not to do it. They chose not to do it and kept this lie up oh about how it was gosh. too degraded to have it tested. So all along, the, his defense team had no idea that there was actual DNA evidence that could be tested. Why would they want to do this? Why would they want to continue? Well, I think at that point, they were just too far, too into, far into it. it where, I mean... No, I don't think it was that. I think it was they had their mind made up from very early on and mm -hmm. didn't want anything that could potentially ruin this theory that they had come up with that Daryl had know. been responsible. If I was a prosecutor, I'd want to know the exact facts, I mean, yeah. regardless of what my feelings were. Oh, my God. His team began filing motions to have the DNA tested, but of course the state continued to object. Given the prosecution's theory that Hunt had been on top of Sykes' during the rape and stabbing, this DNA evidence could conclusively identify Hunt as the perpetrator, and yet they did not want it tested. Ultimately, the judge found that the police had not intimidated witnesses and that although information had been withheld, it was not significant enough to grant Hunt a new trial. He did, however, order that the DNA evidence be tested and compared to the DNA found on Sykes at the time of the murder. Good. So they're finally going okay. to test the evidence that they had against Hunt's actual mm -hmm. DNA. In 1993, the DNA test results excluded not only Daryl Hunt, but also Johnny Gray. Wow. Right. So it wasn't Johnny and it wasn't. Actually, it excluded Daryl Hunt, Sammy Mitchell, and Johnny Gray. So all of the wow. three people who were kind of brought up from the beginning yeah. had all been excluded. Everyone that was on their list was like, nope, yep. you are wrong. In hearing about the DNA results, the state began to change their theory about what happened. <laughs> of course. <laughs> It was now insisting that there had been more than one assailant and that Daryl had killed Sykes while the other man raked her. Mm -mm. And the judge ruled in the prosecution's favor, saying that while the DNA evidence proved that Daryl had not been the one to rape her vaginally, there was a possibility that he could have raped her anally. Moreover, that his exclusion from the rape did not exclude him from the actual murder. Okay. Yep. So he remained in prison. Oof. His team continued to fight and try to get his case heard by the Supreme Court, but they denied the motion for a new trial as well as his appeal. His defense team prevailed in having the DNA collected from the rape and murder run for the first time against the state database, but no one knew how long it would take before a match was made. So, you know, maybe the person's not in the database, mm -hmm, so it mm -hmm. could take a long time. That's true. So around the same time, the Winston-Salem Journal also began their own investigation led by a woman by the name of Phoebe Zerwick. She thought the investigation would only take a couple of months, but six months later, she was still working on finding the truth. In her investigation, she came across the case of a woman by the name of Regina Lane. Okay. So also, um, Phoebe and the journal decided that there was so much information out there, mm -hmm. but none of it had been presented as um, just kind of like, these are the facts. 
a lot of the media at the time had been saying, this is what the defense is saying. This is what the prosecution is saying. And like putting it that way. But that made people kind of pick a side, mm. as, you know, like saying, OK, well, I I think he did it. So yeah. I'm going to agree the with prosecutor what the prosecution makes sense. says. So when they did the story, it ended up being an eight part series. Wow. And they presented it as just like what the facts of the case were to Mm -hmm. kind of allow people to make a decision on their own. And so I think a lot of people at this time started having like doubts and Mm -hmm. maybe second guessing what was actually being portrayed. Mm -hmm. So back to Regina. Regina was on her way to work two blocks from where Deborah's body had been found. As she approached the door to her car, a man blocked her and pointed his gun at her. He grabbed her by the collar of her jacket, forced her into her car, and ordered her to drive to a secluded wooded area. Once there, he robbed, raped, and pistol-whipped her and tried to slash her throat not once but twice with a knife. Thankfully, Regina was able to fight back and ran away to find help. She had picked out a man by the name of Willard Brown from a lineup in 1985. It didn't take long for Regina to notice the similarities between her case and Deborah's as both were young women on their way to work and both had been raped and stabbed. When she brought this up to police, she was scolded for pointing out the similarities and was told not to do anything that would hurt their case against Hunt. Oh my gosh. They discouraged Regina from pursuing charges against Willard Brown, saying it would end up being a he said, she said case and that he would likely get a light sentence. They even implied that she might have gone with him willingly and convinced her that it was not worth it for her to go to trial. Mm. There's that rape culture coming Mm -hmm. into play. She felt that they were trying to avoid putting doubt in people's minds and that they were more concerned with holding on to their conviction than keeping other women safe from a violent predator, mm-hmm. which is true. Mm-hmm. So all of this is going on. All of this is going on. And then there's a DNA match. <gasps> right. The DNA from Sykes crime scene matched that of Willard Brown. Of course it mm-hmm. did. The Sykes administrative review committee which by the way was created to investigate the city's handling of the case concluded that winston-salem police investigators had made numerous mistakes in not connecting lane's rape with the sykes murder although i think i would say that it wasn't that they weren't connecting the dots but that they were purposely disconnecting them from one another They were refusing to see the actual facts Based on this review and the one by the State Bureau of Investigation, the city put into place new procedures to prevent police officers from having such tunnel vision about cases, which is great, but still happening. (laughs) When questioned by police after the DNA match, Brown confessed to the 1984 rape and murder of Sykes. His confession ultimately resulted in the full exoneration and release of Daryl Hunt in 2004, who by then had served more than 19 years of a life sentence for crimes to which he denied committing the whole time. Oh my gosh, I didn't realize that much time had passed. Mm -hmm. Oh. Finally, on February 6th of 2004, Superior Court Judge Alan Anderson Cromer held a release hearing on Hunt. He allowed Sykes' mother, Evelyn Jefferson, to make a statement. During her statement, she criticized the judge for proposing to release Hunt, a man she still believed was guilty of the murder of her daughter. When given a chance to speak, Hunt stood up and turned to face Evelyn. He offered her and her family his condolences and forgave everyone for the years he had spent in prison. The judge vacated his conviction and he was dismissed without prejudice, which means that Hunt could not be tried again for the murder. Mm -hmm. And from that day forward, Hunt devoted his life to reforming a criminal justice system that had stripped him of nearly two decades of his life, becoming a globally known advocate for the wrongfully convicted. He founded the Daryl Hunt Project for Freedom and Justice with the hopes of seeking to educate the public about criminal justice reform, to gain counsel for the wrongfully convicted, and to help release prisoners rebuild their lives after exoneration and release. 
He became an award-winning speaker and spoke at hundreds of conferences. Mm. He spoke to students at schools, audiences at film festivals, and at congregations of religious groups in an effort to spread his message of reform in the criminal justice system. Mm. Good for him. Hunt urged compassion and help to those trying to rebuild lives after serving time in prison. Like I said, in episode six, I covered the remarkable story of Ronald Cotton and Jennifer Thompson Canino. Canino's rape had occurred around the same time as Hunt's trial, Mm -hmm. and she remembers despising Hunt like she did her own attacker. Years later, she said she understood that not only had she judged Ronald incorrectly, but Daryl as well. Mm -hmm. Through her work in lobbying to the state legislature for the wrongfully convicted, she and Hunt began working closely together. He asked Canino to chair the board for his project for Innocence and Justice, which she was honored to accept. So they ended up working together. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Hunt also played a pivotal role in North Carolina's statewide effort to pass a death penalty moratorium bill. Mm -hmm. Due to various appeals and challenges, including over lethal injection as a method of execution, for nearly 10 years, the state did not execute any prisoners. Stephen Deere, the executive director of People and Faith Against the Death Penalty, credited Hunt with contributing to the passage of the legislature of a law establishing the North Carolina Innocence Inquiry Commission to investigate cases of wrongful convictions. It was the first such independent commission in the United States. From 2007 through March 2017, it has exonerated 10 inmates. Hunt also testified before a U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on the death penalty appeals process. So he is just living it up, working hard. Hunt's and similar cases contributed to the legislature's passage of the North Carolina Racial Justice Act of 2009, which allowed death row inmates to have their sentences reduced to life in prison if they could prove racial bias influenced the outcome of their cases, which is that's nice. awesome. Mm-hmm. After the act was passed, most of the 153 persons on death row filed appeals. From 2009 to June 2013, four persons received amended sentences to life imprisonment. Hunt was awarded $1,650,000, much of which was used to support his efforts to help others. And in 2004, he received a settlement of $385,000 under state law that provides $20,000 for every year of wrongful Mm. imprisonment. So he was the first person that got that. Cool. Mm -hmm. However, as the years passed, his friends watched all of this work take a toll on Hunt. At one point, Zerwick, the journalist, recalls Mm -hmm. Hunt had to stop watching the documentary that was screened before his panel discussion because it had become too difficult to constantly relive his horrible experience. Mm -hmm. On top of the mental and emotional toll that his work had taken on him, he fell upon a period of increasingly hard luck, which started with a divorce from his wife. Mm. Yeah. So this woman, I think her name was April. They had gotten together when he was released on bond. Okay. After his first trial and before the second, mm. he had like stayed with her family. I think it was like a family friend. Mm-hmm. And she was with him this whole time. At one point he had told her, you know, I don't think I'm ever going to get out. Mm-hmm. Like you can move on. Like we don't have to get married. And she was like, nope. Like whether we're stick with you. Yeah. She's like, if I can't be with you physically here mm-hmm. in this world, you and I will be together after death. Mm. But that ended. But that was a lie. <laughs> but I mean, it wasn't, I'm sure there was a lot going yeah. on. I mean, everything he was doing is takes a toll on not only him, but everyone around him. It, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Fighting and it's for just justice. like, that's, that's literally all you can do. Like mm-hmm. you wake up, eat it, breathe it. Like mm-hmm. everything, your, your world revolves around this fight. And I understand it because he was in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. And he like got this second chance at life. And all you want to do is like give back to the people who 
helped you get out and mm-hmm. be there for others, but you kind of lose your own personal yeah. life. In 2014, April Hunt filed a domestic violence complaint in which he allegedly talked about how worthless he was and that he should die. So he's having a really hard time. Soon after, he left town in search of his long-lost sister, which he found in Atlanta, I believe. And he decided to stay there with her for a while while he underwent treatment for prostate cancer. Oh, no. Because on top of that, he had cancer. Oh, poor guy. But then in early 2016, he returned to Winston-Salem because he missed the work that he had been doing. Mm-hmm. So upon moving back, he discovered his assets had been frozen, which led to the repossession of his truck due to a missed payment. As that happened, his cancer had advanced to stage four oh, prognosis. Man. All the while, Hunt's depression seemed to grow, becoming increasingly evident to his friends, despite his private nature. Hunt traveled to the University of Virginia for a speaking engagement at its public policy school. Mark, who had continued to be in his life, stated that Hunt seemed distracted, but he had plans to speak at a retreat for a new nonprofit called Healing Justice, which seeks to mend the extensive human damage stemming from wrongful convictions. Mm. And this was supposed to be in the next month or so. So even though he did seem a little distracted, he wasn't really worried about his mental state. Mm -hmm. A month later, the 51-year-old advocate was found dead in a friend's locked pickup truck in what police deemed to be a suicide. Physical evidence found inside the vehicle as well as other investigative findings, indicated that Daryl had suffered a self-inflicted gunshot wound. The police force that found him was the same one that arrested him 32 years ago for the rape and murder of Sykes. That is so frustrating. It's just so sad. That is heartbreaking. It's so, so sad. And it's very, like, Khalif Browder Uh vibes, you know? Uh Uh-huh. I I really mm -hmm. hate that the people that found him were the people that were involved in the beginning. I mean, that's the whole reason why he was there in the Mm -hmm. first place was because of them. It's I mean, it's like the worst kind of full circle moment. Mm -hmm. All in all, Daryl Hunt spent 19 years in prison after a conviction based on mistaken identity and recanted testimony. He spent 15 years in prison after his conviction was overturned and he refused to take a plea deal that would allow him to have gone home. Mm hmm. And he spent 10 years in prison after DNA evidence proved that he had not been the one that assaulted Miss Sykes. And that is a really sad story of Daryl Hunt. <laughs> That's where it ends. And Deborah Sykes. Yeah, I mean. That's really sad. Where else do you want it to end? I don't know. I thought something happy would happen after. I mean, I guess there's no coming back from a death by suicide. But I don't know. I thought there would be a bright spot after I mean, I guess you could say there there was a lot of things that happened as a result of his mm-hmm. activism his and his continued like work in the field. So the, one of the statistics was that like North Carolina had been one of like the top states for death penalty. Mm-hmm. But after his work, they dropped significantly mm. like a lot. Um, you know, he also had a lot to do with like the way that they handled the cases, yeah. there was the, the committee assembled to make sure that, you know, police officers didn't have tunnel vision moving forward. So a lot of great came from this. Mm-hmm. But this is just kind of like a really sad reminder that even when the justice system is able to right their wrongs, the damage is made. Oh, even yeah. if you spend one year in prison, I mean, like, you don't know what that does to someone's mental state. And mm-hmm. in the documentary, they have interviews of him and he talks about how when he's first brought to prison, um, they put him in like a cell at the very end that they kind of basically the, like a, like the hole. It was like a really dark cell, had no Mm -hmm. windows, no ventilation. And they told him as they like took him there, 
that the last N-word who had been there mm-hmm. had been found hung. So, it, I mean, like, can you just imagine? Like, yeah. he's 19 years old. He's basically a child. Yeah. And there's nothing, literally nothing saying that he actually did this. And yet he spends 19 years in jail. Mm-hmm. And he's able to leave that and do a lot of good. But I just think that eventually everything caught up to him. Oh, and, yeah. You, and then, you know cancer dealing with cancer Mm -hmm. itself is such a hard thing to do I Mm -hmm. can only imagine what it's like to deal with cancer when you're someone who has such a like troubled and um damaging past Mm -hmm. that you're also trying to deal with Mm -hmm. so you're trying to deal with everything you you experienced in prison but then also having to deal with the fact that like you've now got the second chance but that's also been ripped away from you with cancer Mm -hmm. it's too much it's just a lot so I don't have like a specific um, organization that you guys can donate to. I did look for his organization and mm-hmm. found a Facebook page, but mm-hmm. it said it was closed already. Oh. So the the last posting had been, I think, from like June of 2020. Um, and they were just posting like things about Daryl's life and mm-hmm. work that he had done. But mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like his nonprofit is still operating. Okay. So I would just say if you're interested in helping in any way, donating to the ACLU is always a great thing but also the legal defense fund helped him throughout his oh, trial okay. so donating to the legal defense fund mm-hmm. you can find them at naacpldf.org mm-hmm. so while I don't have a way for you to help specifically to his cause he was helped by these two organizations yeah. and the innocence project of course so either one of those are great places for you to go even mm-hmm. if you want to just learn a little bit more about the case so I hope you guys enjoyed it. I know it ended on a sad note, but I think that a lot of good came from yeah. Daryl's case, but also with Ronald Cotton and mm-hmm. Jennifer Thompson Canino, who were able to kind of all link up after all of this had happened to do really mm-hmm. great things. So I really enjoyed learning more about this. Yeah, thank you for that one. That one was very heartbreaking, and I'm sorry that it ended the way that it did, but it's nice to know that um, Jennifer Thompson Canino and Ronald Cotton are continuing the fight right. to this day. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure they are taking on his legacy and making sure that his name is remembered as well. I think it's also important for us to like remember that we cover a lot of these wrongful conviction cases and a good amount of the ones that we cover have some sort of happy ending mm-hmm. or there's some sort of resolution. Mm-hmm. Um but that's just not the case for everyone. No. And, you know, he was able to get get out of prison and live his life for a little bit. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of people who, like him, have been wrongfully convicted who are still in jail fighting fighting for a second chance. Mm-hmm. So this is just a reminder that not everyone has a happy ending and that there are still people out there fighting. And it's kind of on us to help in whatever mm-hmm. way we can. That's true. All right. If you guys have any questions, comments, concerns, you can reach out to us on our social media, Unjustly Podcast, or you can email us at unjustlypodcast at gmail.com. Leave us a rating and review. Uh, We appreciate seeing those a lot. And don't forget to subscribe. Thank you, guys. We will see you next week. I don't know what I'm bringing you yet, um, but (laughs) stay tuned. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. So now for the story. So I got my sources. What's the story? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> allowing him to sit and put, 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 trying to you know mm-hmm. make the world a better case place yeah did i did you not say case oh place <laughs> make the world a better case
So all in all, and I probably shouldn't breathe that loud into it. <sighs> Even when the justice system is able to wrong their rights. Right the wrong? Yes. Thank you.